I'm talking to Nikhil Shamapat, who put out an amazing banger of a paper called Ethereum, the triple halving, how Ethereum can achieve $150,000 by 2023 and a plea for Ethereum bulls to dream bigger dreams. Wow. What a title. I feel like I feel like your, your aspiration was to write an institutional grade paper. And I feel like I'm reading a, a like super prestigious sell side report. So congratulations. <laughs> Thanks so much. That means a lot. Nikhil, t- just give us a little background about yourself. You came out uh, like Anon on Twitter now, kind of um, D-Anon. What do you, uh, what's your real life about? How, do you, how did you get this much expertise in kind of analyzing the financial markets? And and in crypto as well. Yeah, I mean, my background so far uh, is in medicine. I'm just finishing up my last year of medical school, um, so not connected to investing at all. Uh, and that's why I'm I'm pretty clear about that in my like Twitter bio and uh, in introducing the piece that I really do consider myself, uh, you know, a retail investor. Um, and and. I'm aware that there might be errors that an institutional grade researcher wouldn't make. So I'm, I've been looking forward to hearing back from people. Um, but my background for investing, I, I started to get into the stock market when I was 15. Um, I don't even know how I got into it. I think I just, I realized that Google finance was showing you like stock tickers moving and that in <laughs> class, instead of listening to like the history, you know, teacher say something about, you know, old people, I would just, I would just look at like, Oh, like what's happening to like Cisco stock and like why is it moving? And what was the first stock you bought? Super boring. Uh, it was KKR Financial Holdings, and <laughs> it didn't move. And I sold it for like basically no change. Uh, and I decided I wanted something more exciting. Mm-hmm. And so the second stock I bought was this speculative stem cell pharma company okay. that proceeded to crash eighty percent. <laughs> in nice. the next three months. <laughs> so, so that was my, introdu- my introduction. Well acclimated with shit coins right out the gate. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was, I was like, oh gosh, my dad was like, this is a learning lesson for you in the future. And I was like, oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and how um, did you learn um, like finance and investing to the level such that you could write this paper? Yeah. I mean, initially I was just a high schooler who wanted to like figure something out. And so I had lots of genius ideas that everyone has that don't actually work. So I was like, oh, stocks give a dividend. Like, what if I buy a stock right before it, you know, pays a (laughs) dividend and sell it the next day? And I didn't realize like these kinds of arbitrage ideas are just like very casual and like hedge funds will look at this and model them. And if there was an edge there, like it's gone now. (laughs) Um, But I was that kind of obsession where I would be like, I have this idea, like I can solve this problem. I can screen for stocks that are cheap before I knew what the value factor was. I then realized everyone else is doing it and I would just explore. And, um, I have bought, I was, I started with value investing because, uh, I think like a lot of people start there cause it just makes sense to them and, and I could understand it. And so, uh, I learned to read financial statements, learned to value companies. Um, was and I really school or college by now. Uh, high school, early college. Um, and then honestly, like the last couple of years of college, uh, last two years of college, first two years of medical school, I took a pretty big step back. Um, I just was focused on medical school and focused on studying philosophy in college, um, growing. And, 
But then, you know, when COVID hit, uh, I think a lot of people had a lot of time. And I saw, I'm sure you saw a lot of people were uh, playing around on Robinhood when stocks started to resurge. And I knew just enough to kind of not want to make the same mistakes that a lot of people were making. Like I, I just could not YOLO into a random stock if I knew how to analyze the business, if I knew how to ground myself in what it was worth. So uh, when, you know, when COVID was happening, I was on the medicine wards and I kind of saw it was happening. So I actually bought VIX call options uh, as that was happening. Um, and I knew just enough to know that the VIX was definitely going to spike, but not enough to know the degree of detail that I know now. Like, I, I wonder now if I would have still had the guts to, to buy it because I didn't know about the volatility of volatility. I didn't know that the VIX had a term structure. I didn't, you know, so I just knew, I was like, look, if, if this pandemic is real, the VIX will, will spike. And so I bought that call option. And when that worked and we had a lot of time and people got into stocks, I was like, wait a second, let me learn more about this. And so I kind of tapped into that high school energy and I started learning about options and volatility. Uh, and I also started learning about Bitcoin because Bitcoin, because this was April, 2020 and Bitcoin was about to go to a halving event. You're fairly new to the crypto side. Incredibly new. Um, and so, you know, the cool thing about Bitcoin is in order to get into Bitcoin, you have to get into monetary policy, which if you're learning about value investing, it's just not something that was part of my like high school learning curve. So a lot of people were learning to YOLO these stocks. And I was like, look, I did that in high school and it didn't work very well. <laughs> so I'm going to learn something else. And so uh, the past like 12 months, I mean, fourth year medical school, thankfully, is a lot lighter than the other years. And I had time. So the last 12 months, I just devoured content ranging from macro policy to crypto to options and quant. And it was just so much fun. And I mean, I tried to put it all together <laughs> in, the, in the Ethereum piece. How, um, how many times have you contemplated dropping out of medical school to do this as a full-time thing? Yeah, everyone's been asking me about that. <laughs> and I mean, I appreciate the compliment, but I, in high school, the only thing I considered outside of medicine when, I, when people would be like, well, what are you interested in? I'd be like, well, like maybe I'll go to business school. Maybe I'll go be a hedge fund manager. Um, but I, I, I think, I mean, Medicine is great. I, it's like hard to explain to people who are in finance who are like never considered being a doctor. I'm like, well, this, it's a whole other side of the world here. Um, and as far as learning too, it's it's hard to, I guess, communicate. But um, I think, you know, uh, finance definitely trains a certain part of your brain. It's like very analytical and markets are reflexive. So you have to, you can't just think like a normal scientist. You have to assume that what you're going to find out to be true right now using the same methods might yield a different answer five minutes later. And that's just really like just an amount of rigor that you don't get anywhere else. Yep. Uh, but like in medicine, there are so many skills and that you learn that you just are not going to get in finance. I mean, just putting aside the fact, I think that obviously there's incredible fulfillment and just taking care of patients and, and being a part of like the medical community. Um, there's also like medicine is just messy. Uh, and, and, you know, people are sick and things just don't go your way and you have to deal with emotions in a way. Like if you think trading psychology is hard, like talk about like, you know, the emotions that people are having when uh, their loved ones are really ill. And so, uh, you know, 
you learning to take risks in finance is one thing when you can kind of distance yourself, you, you can't distance yourself from the risks you take uh, when you're deciding what medications to give a patient and things like that. Uh, and so I've only observed that stuff uh, as a medical student to this point, but um, starting residency in two months. And I just think, again, it's like this last 12 months, I've learned so many new things. And I think that's just going to pale in comparison to what I'm going to learn this next year. So I haven't thought about it that much, honestly. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, what is something that you learned? Have you ever learned anything from the medical side that's helped you or like augmented the way you think um, when you're on, on kind of investing in crypto? Um, that's a good question. Um, intuitively, so, you know, the first rule of, of medicine is like, do no harm. Um, and I know like when I learned about value investing initially, Warren Buffett has his first rule, which is like, don't lose money. Uh, and it's easy to just kind of like paper over that. But I remember, I remember thinking about that a lot in the last year because I was reading, um, I don't know if you've read any Nassim Taleb yeah. stuff, uh, like Black Swan and stuff like that. And, uh, and he talks about ergodicity a little bit, uh, which is just this concept that if something seems like it has, it's like a good bet, that doesn't mean you should take it. You have to figure out whether you will be able to survive. Mm. Uh, and I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, I think in medicine, that's just implicit. Like you can't, you can't say like, oh, like this decision is just going to have like a good expected value, but you know, you, you could just die. Like you, you have to pause and really it's baked into how you think about decision-making and clinical thinking. It's just, um, so thinking about the tail risk is like by default, whereas in investing, you kind of almost often just neglect it. Yeah, you, you have to, I mean, for every, it's it's institutionalized in some ways. And we actually, we hate that sometimes where it's, you know, you have to tell patients that very benign procedures could kill them. And, and you're like, this is not going to kill them, but you have to tell them that. And, but it makes sense, right? Because ethically, like tail risk is, is for, for in medicine, tail risk is, is an ethical concern, right? Like if it's, it's more than just, uh, oh, I can say no one else saw this black swan coming. Like, no, you're the doctor. You should have seen, you should have seen that this could have happened. You didn't need to change. You didn't need to, you don't need to make a different decision, but you have to communicate that, that bad things happen. And yeah. And this is what I kind of was getting at with like medicine is messy and, and, and finance is, is like, it gives you a certain amount of distance that you just, you can't get in medicine. Um, and you kind of like don't want in medicine almost. Uh, I mean, there's obviously some amount of complexity to that. Uh, and I'm hoping, I think I'm going to learn a lot uh, about what that really means. I'm speaking to you right now as if I have so much experience. I like talking about my clinical rotations, you know? <laughs> um, so I'm like really observing doctors more than being one. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, just a lot to look forward to. And I think, yeah, I've learned so much about, and a lot of those like softer skills about how to deal with adversity and things like that too. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you're staying um, in in medicine and isn't just dropping out like like the rest of humanity, <laughs> you know, value add degrees like medicine and engineering to to be a finance person. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking there's a line in Interstellar which is which is like we didn't run out of uh, televisions, we ran out of food. You know, <laughs> like, man, humanity is like we're not running out of finance people, running out of engineers and, and doctors. So. Um, on behalf of whoever I can represent, <laughs> thank you for staying in and still having fun on the side. Appreciate it.
let's let's talk about your paper um because there's so much to go through um where do we begin i guess here i'll i'll, I'll give you my thoughts i've read probably 80 percent of it because it's it's so epic um but you know in investing very broadly there there are two kind of styles you can you can you can use when when choosing to buy or trade a stock right you can go with fundamental research you know which is like you know, how many units of iPhones are is Apple going to ship this year or you know, how many MAUs is, is Google going to have um, you can look at fundamentals and, and project revenues and then try to apply a fair valuation to that and then you have the kind of um, call it quantitative perspective um, which is some you know you could almost if you are using a technical analysis, you could almost know nothing about the underlying. It could be right. wood, it could be Apple, it could be uh, you know Ethereum, and you don't even need to know. You just have to look at the charts and some indicators. You can just trade purely off that. You don't even care what the underlying is. And those are the two primary kind of mental models I've become you know accustomed to at least, and most people are accustomed to. But what you're introducing, and maybe it's a, a subset of the quantitative side, and I'm curious if you think it is, mm-hmm. but it's a flows-based um, analysis, which um, is sort of like in between, which is kind of like not saying what is this company about, how or this token protocol about, what is it going to do? Is it going to be a big, is it going to you know capture 1% of the you know the banking industry? Nor is it about looking at charts. But rather, it's asking um, what are some natural forces or like in, inexorable forces that's coming into play that will force market participants to buy or sell or hold in a certain way that has nothing to do with the underlying uh, mechanic uh, like product or the chart per se. Like, would you consider this a third kind of large mental model of evaluating kind of investment decisions? Do you think it's part of the, the maybe quantitative side? How do you think about it? Yeah, I, I actually, so I agree. That's how I, I used to think about it that way too, where I would think, okay, like value investing, you look at a company, you figure out what its earnings are, what is it worth, uh, and you buy it below that price. Uh, and maybe the same thing for um, you know crypto as well. Uh, and then there's the other side, the technical analysts, the quants who are saying, buy above the 30 week moving average, you know? Um, And I think I don't, it's not that I think that I've come up with some third way. I think I, I actually just think that there is a more, just a bigger picture, like a universal framework, which is just to say that no matter what your reasoning for thinking the asset is going to be worth something more in the future, you you know, that you're only going to be right if the price moves to reflect that. So like, let's say, that you think, you know, uh, this lemonade stand is worth, you know, $10 per share, and it's currently priced at $5 per share. Well, I can tell you from years of, you know, value investing in high school and doing it very poorly, I might add, that like no amount of, of like, you know, genius level analysis is going to help you if no one else ever just agrees with you. Like that company can be minting cash, right? But in order, there's like two ways that you're going to be right. Either everyone decides you're right and they start buying until the price moves from, you know, five to your valuation of 10. Or um, the, the, there's something that grounds, grounds that value. So, you know, the company starts issuing a special dividend or, uh, you know, the company gets bought out for $10 per share. Um, or you hold the company until the end of time, you actually collect the DCF of the company. 
No, right. Or, or, well, no, but even then, like the DCF accrues to the company's bank account and you're sitting there like, when am I going to get this money? <laughs> you know, and, and, and I've, because, you know, this is again, so I like, uh, I kind of think about this like philosophically sometimes and I tried to abstract out and I'm like, okay, like what's the craziest thing? Like what anchors price at all? Like, is this all in our heads? Like why does this like lemonade stand? Even if maybe my DCF is just like accurate, like I have access to the future. I can tell you every year's earnings and I can tell you interest rates in the future and I can perfectly peg it. Like why, like, is it possible that the price could still not move to where it is? Like, is that, and, and, the answer is absolutely. <laughs> and we see that all the time, right? So like when, when value investors talk about Mr. Market, like that's what we're saying. That's what people are saying is that like prices on a short-term basis are not moving because of valuations. And when people say on a long-term basis, they are, they often hand wave that away. But the reason they do is because something grounds supply and demand. So for instance, if over 10 years, uh, the price did not grow to reflect the valuation. The price just stayed constant. And the company kept earning and growing. Uh, th- that company is going to get bought out because the private market is going to be able to take advantage of that. Mr. New buyer emerges. Right. And so all the market is doing when the price is going up is it's reflecting that, that change in value, but it doesn't need to. And, and if you as an investor don't recognize that you can go for long periods without ever having your like theoretical value pan out that you're that's a risk right and and we've seen the last decade that value investors got decimated right and and it's not that they're all just suddenly bad analysts right it's just the market wasn't reward market just didn't see it their way uh and framework why didn't um the value perspective work in the last 10 years what what like shouldn't I assume those, I mean, did those businesses have fundamentals that decayed and therefore underperformed their kind of forecast or private equity buyers or this grounding buyer didn't emerge to fill the gap? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to say, right? Because uh, so, you know, people like Cliff Asnes at AQR, they uh, really dig into this thing. It's called a value factor where you buy cheap companies. And there's a lot of that discussion where, you know, the intent there is to buy companies that people are really down on. They look like they're decaying, uh, but they're overreacting. So they're actually worth more. And over like multiple decades, that seems to do really well. But in the last, well, actually, so, but interestingly, from like 2000 to 2006, it destroyed the market, did incredibly well. And then from 2006 till now, it has burned money. (laughs) And it is, it's like, it's fascinating too, because I remember in high school, I used to be enamored with all these, these guys, and they're truly as talented, like when I talk, Michael Burry, like those kinds of investors who are just incredibly talented, right? But you have to put it into context. So like, Michael Burry is investing in 2005. Well, guess what? Value investing works in 2005. Uh, those stocks are moving. And so he, he showed incredible talent. He probably outperformed the value factor, which is alpha, right? But like those stocks, like they moved in an environment where the market was flowing to the value narrative, right? So like that's that environment. In the last, you know, 10, 15 years, we haven't seen that. And I don't know, maybe Michael Burry's pivoted and he's adapted to that environment as well. But like what we've seen in the last 15 years is if you buy uh, an index of low price to earnings companies, you're basically like tracking the market. Uh, Whereas if you bought like a momentum fund, you trounced everyone, right? And 
I don't think it's because value is broken or momentum rules the world. It's, it's because like the way that any factor works, uh, any fundamental thesis, if you think your business is worth more, you can only be right. If like there are money flows that move the price to reflect that you're right. When that can be a, an event in arbitrage where someone says like a private buyer comes in and literally buys the whole thing. And that's the money flow is the purchasing of the company. Right. Or that can be that the market's like recognizing that value more and um, over time. And so, so I, I, I tend to, anyways, to bring it back, I tend to think that these models, they just kind of subsume under one big umbrella. Uh, I think the, the fundamental analysts are over a long time horizon. They're looking at flows that dominate. So like these things like the triple having and things like that, there are like 18 months was my time horizon. I think it's a longer term catalyst, but it's like, you know, these, these fundamental analysts are looking over a five year. You'll often hear people be like, you have to have a five-year time horizon, like five to 10 year holds. Right. And like five to 10 year holds, but it makes sense. Like over that time horizon, uh, either the market is going to just start agreeing with you. Uh, you're going to be wrong or like a private buyer will emerge to make you right. And so if you're a fundamental analyst, that's the time frame to work it on, you know? Let's, before we just, we should move on to Ethereum, but why do you yeah. think it is that um, in the, 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 I don't know, the buyer to set the new price or, or to recognize value hasn't emerged? Like if it's one consistent, if, there's no, if it's not just kind of investors moving from one temperament to another, um, like what's the, I guess this is a very large mm-hmm. question debated to death in the message. Yeah, it's, it's... Do you have a just it's, what's it's, your theory on why value is not working? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would actually say that it's potentially starting to work in the last, like, six months. Uh, so, and, and, and so why was it not working and why is it working? I mean, it's, yeah, again, it's, that's a bigger question that I have expertise on, so just caveat. But from what I can tell, I think that, you know, interest rates and the Fed and the macro environment has a big part of it. And so uh, if if you have interest rates at 1%, you can afford to pay for earnings that are farther and farther out. Um, value stocks often get most of their value from the next five years of earnings um, versus something like a Tesla, uh, where it's getting its earnings from much, much farther out. So if you're willing to, you know, give, if you're comparing like, uh, you know, Hershey's chocolate company to Tesla and your, your valuation model is, is saying like the next five years is what really matters because there's high interest rates. Then, you know, Hershey's chocolate company is going to be worth a lot more. But if you're saying, Hey, no, no, interest rates are so low that we're going to give value to what happens 10, 20 years out. Well, now Tesla is really going to have that exponential growth. Right. And so that gives Tesla a huge edge. And I think we saw that in the like 2015 to 2020 timeframe, um, and then now we're going to, we're seeing stimulus, uh, in inflation related concerns <laughs> and, uh, interest rates potentially rising and we're seeing value make a comeback. Is that causal? Like, I'm not sure. Um, and honestly, like I ha- get that take from listening to a lot of people sure. who are smarter than me, <laughs> but that's, that's my understanding right now. Awesome. Okay. Let's, um, talk about your paper. Um, instead of me trying to summarize it, why don't you give the kind of, uh, you know, two minute summary of what were you trying to say in this paper um and you know what got you so excited that that you wrote a 79 page report on ethereum yeah so i got interested in crypto uh, a year ago through bitcoin started to learn about ethereum started to understand the platform was very big and then 
in only in the last like two or three months, I think, um, I started to learn about EIP 1559 and proof of stake, which are two coming upgrades to the Ethereum network. Uh, and that really has changed, I think, the investment case. And so, um, so big picture, what I realized was that um, I think that a lot of how investors are looking at Ethereum is just a, uh, a riskier version of, of Bitcoin or Bitcoin's little brother. Um, but um, especially moving forward, EIP-1559 and proof of stake create like a fundamental difference. They are going to be, uh, you know, blockchain technologies that operate completely differently. Uh, they're already very different, but uh, after that point, uh, not just in uh, name, but it'll also be in like the way that the network is secured, the way that the platform um, operates. Um, and so I was like, wait, this change is, is going to be big. Um, let me look into this. And then I realized it's, it's not just a change in the story, uh, but it's a change in how uh, the buying and selling of, of Ethereum and Bitcoin are, is going to work. And so um, my thesis boils down to, I think that in the next 18 months, we're going to see Ethereum becoming dramatically more illiquid. Uh, it's going to be harder to buy or sell without affecting the price. Um, and that's going to be a change we're going to see in Ethereum that we're not going to see in Bitcoin. Um, I think we're going to see a huge on-ramp of demand. Um, I think that's going to be some, a kind, the kind of demand that we're going to see in this cycle wasn't even possible in the last cycle. Uh, just the technology and the access has improved. Um, I think in the next 18 months, there's going to be a major catalyst. And so we'll get into this a little bit. But um, I talk about how these upgrades, EIP-1559 and proof of stake, um, are actually, actually like structural shift in uh, demand and supply flows. Uh, and that will kick off the price and kind of get it off the ground. Um, and then I argue that price leads people to look into these technologies and that when they do, unlike the last cycle where mostly uh, people were looking at Ethereum and seeing the initial coin offering craze, I think a lot of people will come back and say, hey, wait, you know, we're back doing this again. Like, what's this about? And they'll say, oh, wait a second. There's something real here. We have businesses being built on the network. We have exchanges, we have lending, we have yields. So unlike buying Bitcoin, which a lot of people were willing to buy Bitcoin for no yield, but now yeah. I can get a store of value and, and get a yield. So that's intuitively a more common investment case. So I think that all of that is going to combine um, to just create a much more uh, powerful uh, dynamic in the next 18 months than people are used to. Um, and, and the reason I started getting really passionate about it is because I started to realize that everyone in the space, including uh, many of the Ethereum experts, uh, you know, they would, they're experts in, in the technology. So they would talk about how Ethereum is different and they would uh, write long articles about the technology and what makes it unique. But then everything came back to a Bitcoin analogy. Um, every analysis of what where price could go and why was all based around Bitcoin. And uh, as I pointed out, I think a lot of these dynamics are going to be unique to Ethereum and not Bitcoin. And so I think the future will break with the past. 
this is not uncommon with disruptive technologies. Uh, and I thought I was like, well, that's silly. Like I, you know, so much respect for the, for the technology and the analysis um, that these experts provide. But I think from an investment perspective, uh, I think a lot of the analysis got a little lazy comparing to Bitcoin. And so I thought, hey, uh, maybe I can make the case that this will change and that will be more dramatic than anyone's really expecting. Is that true even with the kind of people in the Ethereum community like Justin Drake and Bankless people and, and FE yeah. Society? I feel like their analysis are pretty much grounded in the inherent merits of Ethereum. Yeah, and, and I should clarify. So yeah, every name you mentioned, Justin Drake is who I based you know, all of my, my, all the numbers in my case was based on his work. Uh, yeah, Anthony Sassano, they're, they're incredibly um, bullish. They, they are 100%, they have their finger on the pulse. They know that Ethereum is not Bitcoin. They know that it's going to be worth um, a lot more than people anticipate. Uh, it, so it's a minor, it's a minor critique, but it, it matters because at the end of a lot of these articles, and I don't want to pick out any names. So I, I think like, I think Anthony reached out to me and he was like, Hey, I actually have a higher price target than you, you said I had. And I was like, Oh, so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say that they're all like pessimist. It's just, I saw, you know, a lot of people would look at the price action in the last cycle and they would say, Oh, like in 2017, you know, uh, Ethereum moved, 20% more than Bitcoin. And I think based on this Bitcoin valuation model, you know, Bitcoin's going to go up 5X from here. So Ethereum will go up more. If I were and, to rephrase, it was like everyone, the, the level one easy way or maybe lazy way to kind of do the price forecast this cycle is to analogize from prior cycles and ease right. of Bitcoin. Whereas you're doing more of a kind of fundamental and this, and, and, you know, people are first sure. based analysis based on what is the underlying mechanics that's going to happen in the next 18 months for Ethereum supply, Ether supply. And how is that um, also based on some prior experience with Bitcoin having going to affect the Ethereum price? Since these things that are happening yeah. to Ethereum in, the, in these two major changes, the IP 1559 and the merge have never happened in history in crypto. So there's no way to ana analogize their effect. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And the analogy is what I was, I was, I was thinking, I was like, man, the, they're so, you know, their life is is Ethereum, and then I listened to the Bankless uh, like ultra bull case for Ethereum, and the highest price target was twenty thousand, and I was like, that's below my base case. You know what I mean? Like I, and I'm like, maybe I'm just insane. I was like, you know, who am I to say that they're wrong? But it would be a real shame if you know. I was thinking to myself at the time, I was like, it would be a real shame if Bankless like sold their Ethereum at 20,000 oh. and it ran to like 150,000 because yeah. they knew, you know, like they, if anyone were to know, camp out there, yeah, right? exactly. If anyone were to know this was going to happen, it would be them. And, and again, it's not that they got any of the analysis wrong. Like I, they're, they're on it. Like their fingers on the pulse, right? Like they know it's just, when it comes to like the next 18 months, there are these just unique attributes that I think, all these analogies are going to break down. And so if you have these, it's a cycle, you have to sell at the top of the crypto cycle because it's going to go down because every four years it goes up and then it goes down. Well, what happens when that cycle breaks yeah. and you sell and it goes up uh, and then everyone gets left behind and everyone, I mean, it's part of my thesis where it's like, it, if it breaks and it goes from 20,000, maybe it goes down a little and it breaks out of 40,000, everyone FOMOs back in. Like that's how, that's how crazy things happen, you know? And, uh, but do you really want to have missed that much of the move? Uh, anyways, that's kind of what the impetus was. It was like, let's, let's get people who kind of have done the work. 
let's get them like the outcome they deserve instead of having them cash out like you know seven x before the peak is at least per my thesis i, I yeah. agree and if i were to like um kind of help people understand your style of analysis here once again i think it's very interesting that it's not a fundamental based analysis in the sense that um ethereum will ship a new feature and this feature will yeah. be worth you know, we'll, we'll capture 1% of the banking market. Like Arthur Hayes, for example, wrote a great piece valuing kind of the very top-down opportunity for Ethereum in, con- in the context of DeFi and capturing the financial markets. And there he's like, mm-hmm. if, you know, $3 trillion financial market plus auditing market, you capture 1% of that um, at the same multiple Ethereum should yeah. be worth $40,000. Very clean argument, right? But also a yep. very, very long-term argument. You have to believe yep. a bunch of things about adoption and, you know, software yep. actually taking on um, these roles. And, and I really, I enjoy that piece a lot. And, and I talk about it all the time. You're not saying any of that. Um, you're, you're like, fine, whatever. You don't have to believe in that one way or the other, yep. nor are you looking at charts and saying, here's the line, you know, here's the, here's the volume. Yep. You're not saying any of that. Your argument would be, is purely around the supply and dynamics of Ethereum and these, uh, and these specific two changes coming up that will dramatically change those characteristics. It would be like if I'm an Apple investor or we're Apple investors and you're like, I don't care about the next iPhone. I don't care about the next iPad or VR goggles, whatever. And I don't look at the charts, but Apple has this new mechanic with its share issuance. Where- well, that's actually okay. That's a better analogy than you'd think because so so you've seen what Apple with the price of yeah, <laughs> but uh, so you've seen what the price of Apple has done in the yeah. past, you know, five years, ten years, I think. Um, well, look back to when Tim Cook came over. Cash Apple's cash flows were insane. Steve Jobs, you know, had, was no longer CEO. Everyone was worried about the product. And, and a lot of people were skeptical because they were like, well, what product is Apple going to ship? But there were some investors who were like, wait a second, Tim Cook is going to take all this cash and his philosophy is to do share buybacks. He's going to take, you know, I don't even know what the numbers are, like $100 billion of billion cash. dollars of like, yeah, balance sheet to work with. Right. And he's going to just buy back stock. Well, that's right. You know, so that has a theoretical effect on like earnings per share and all this stuff, but it also has the effect of just buying shares of the company, right? And I'm again, I, I'm not arguing that in the short term that that was just like a Kickstarter, but I, I do think there were a lot of really astute investors who, I, for instance, when Warren Buffett comes into Apple stock, I don't think he's arguing that he's suddenly a technology guru who, who can see that Apple's going to release AirPods, right? I think he he looks at a, a, a huge buyback and he's like, that is structurally, Apple will be a higher at a higher price in the future. And so if I buy it now, and again, I don't want to give the impression that my Ethereum thesis has anything to do with a Warren Buffett philosophy. But just to show you, like, this isn't a unique, like, I'm not coming up with a, a way of looking at assets. That this happens in the no stock one, all the time, right? Exactly. This is not a, a one-time thing or the first time this argument's been but, made. But Ethereum is, is because it's so programmable, it can, like, it's equivalent to a stock is the number of shares outstanding. Like, there are things that can, that can happen, and Ethereum's equivalent is the total ETH supply, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and there are things, like, with EIP-1559 and the merge, like, crazy shit happens to the supply. It will be like, like yeah. I don't know. It would be like Apple saying, mm, "We have this new, um, we have this new model where uh, I don't know uh, every employee we have right now issues a lot of stock to employees, stock options. Instead of cashing out those stock options, they will be burned instead, so they will never <laughs> enter the right. pool." Like, right. 
exactly it's that level of mechanic it's and when you apply that level of mechanic to to a thing with where the price is heavily you know influenced by the supply mechanics it has dramatic consequences completely independent of the technology fundamentals and adoption like that. yeah no the programmability of ethereum uh it 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 makes everything, it accentuates the effect completely, right? So yeah, you're absolutely right. Like if they're buying back shares, like it's it's an effect, but it's it's mostly going to be more of that theoretical effect where it's going to raise earnings per share and people are going to, you know, agree that that's worth something instead of instead of a supply demand dynamic. I mean, there's something to that. But in the case of Ethereum, you're talking about right now, there's 12% of, of Ethereum that's just literally locked or staked. Uh, no, no one can touch 12% of it. So that's yeah. like, you know, it's the equivalent of like an insider coming in and owning 12% of it. And now I'm telling you, like, that's going to burgeon up to like, you know, we're going to have like 20, 30%. Uh, exactly. And it's just going to keep accelerating. Right. Um, yeah. Let's, let's go through to the next layer in your, in your um, model. Um, you yeah. call it a triple halving event for Ethereum. Um, mm-hmm. for folks who don't know what halvings are and, and the mechanics of how that, how to think through that in terms of price implications. Would you kind of give an overview of, um, what all that's about. Yeah, so um, that, uh, I call it the triple having because I wanted to anchor it in something that I think a lot of, uh, at least cryptocurrency aware uh, investors um, would know about. Um, and so, but just, but just for an audience that might not have it. Um, so, so Bitcoin uh, is, it uses a proof of work model. Uh, for their blockchain. And what that means is they have miners and the miners uh, run computer, uh, they run computations on their computers, um, which is the work. And in return for doing that work, uh, the miners are, they receive issuance from the network. Uh, They receive, it's called block reward. uh, And that's just new Bitcoin. Um, The work they provide is important to Bitcoin network. It provides security. um, It allows them to validate transactions on the network. Uh, and so it's really crucial that they get this reward because it incentivizes them to do this service and provide security to the network. Um, but Bitcoin, when you when you provide new issuance like this, that sounds like dilutive, right? So it sounds like uh, there's just constant supply increasing. Um, and that's true of circulating supply. So like, you know, if there's 10 Bitcoin that, that are in the, you know, ecosystem, uh, you know, every day more Bitcoin are being given to miners and that that circulating supply is increasing. Um, But Bitcoin has a programmable amount of total supply. Um, And so the amount that can ever be mined is capped uh, at 21 million. Um, And so how do you have this dynamic where where miners are are being given new issuance uh, and the amount of circulating supply is increasing but the total supply will never change. Um, and the way that they do that is that every four years, the amount of new issuance that is given to these miners uh, is cut in half. Um, so again, that doesn't mean that there's half of the Bitcoin that used to exist. Just the uh, is reduced by. It's just the new issuance, right? And so it's, it's a small part of- um, This is why it, it approaches 21 million asymptotically. It doesn't you know, keep, keep going up, even though it's going up all the time. Exactly. So maybe like the first, uh, you know, maybe you start with with ten bit with uh, ten million Bitcoin, and then uh, after four years you're at fifteen million, but then four more years you're only going up by to seventeen million. You're not going up by a constant amount. It's going to approach twenty one million. 
Um, and, and yeah, it's even the four years, it, it ends up being roughly four years, but it's based on uh, the way transactions work. It's on the number of blocks uh, in the blockchain um, rather than like the time, but it ends up being roughly four years. And so um, that dynamic is well known in the Bitcoin community to have caused a major spike in Bitcoin's price um, three times in the past, this being the third time. Um, so the last so, time May of 2020. Yes, the most recent halving was May of 2020. And you can kind of look at the price of Bitcoin and what it did uh, in the months that followed that. Um, So a few points here. One is that this happened, this is the third time. So it happened in 2012, uh, where the halving event, and you know, three months later, Bitcoin's price is dramatically higher. It happened in 2016. uh, That caused the mania that in 2017, that I think was much more well publicized. Um, and then it happened this year in 2020 as well. Um, the other thing I'll point out is that in every single one of those episodes, it's not that the day of the having Bitcoin suddenly spiked, right? So I, I had this experience cause again, like I'm a little new to this and I was like, Oh great. Bitcoin's having it. This is going to be amazing. And I, you know, went on my Robin hood and I was like, let's do this. I bought some Bitcoin the day of the having, I'm like, this is the most boring thing ever. Like you couldn't tell that. Yeah. 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 It was like such a letdown. Honestly, I was like, this is not what I was hoping for. Everyone's telling me it's going to 10 X and it's like, you know, Bitcoin's up like 3%. I'm like, okay, great. Um, But that leaves something to be explained. Right. So, so why is it that Bitcoin's not moving on that day, but everyone's attributing the having event to, uh, to Bitcoin's rise over the next year or two. Before right? we get and, to that, yeah, why should halvings cause price Bitcoin price to increase? Yeah, so so the story, because Bitcoin doesn't rise on that day, the story is that uh, what, what a halving event really tells you is that Bitcoin is scarce. Um, and so you can model the value of scarcity. So for instance, um, when people who are interested in buying gold, like physical gold, uh, think about, what they're buying. There's this thing called the stock to flow ratio. Uh, and stock means like how much gold is uh, out there in the economy right now. And flow means how much is being mined every year. Okay. So, you know, a scarce asset is going to have a higher ratio. I mean, the amount that's being mined is just a smaller part of the overall amount. Right. And so that's a theoretical model to, to value gold. So you could say like in 2020, Bitcoin stock to flow ratio became higher than gold's. And so everyone's like, well, gold has a $10 trillion market cap. Bitcoin has a higher stock to flow. This is why the having works is is a narrative that I've heard. This is why the having works is because now it changes people's valuation models. It makes people think it's worth more. But that didn't sit well with me. And I think a lot of people it doesn't sit well with because that should be be priced in, right? Like I can look ahead and I can know the having is going to happen. And so a lot of people, and again, it's not an original idea that I'm having a lot of People in Bitcoin uh, will agree with this. They'll say, "No, no, no! Like that is a narrative." But also, the Bitcoin having can't be priced in. It's a, it's a, it's a saying that people uh, in you know Bitcoin maximalists will say a lot. Um, and I used to just be like, "What does that even mean? Anything can be priced in. You can price in any information, right?" Um, but I came to the conclusion I think that they're onto something. Um, and the way that that works is I started to look at Bitcoin miners. So these Bitcoin miners, they run these computers. They have expensive graphics cards. They use a lot of electricity, generate a lot of heat. And in return, they get this Bitcoin. Well, guess what? They have to pay for the air conditioning. They have to pay for the graphics card. 
um, after each halving event, it becomes twice as hard to mine Bitcoin. So they need to buy twice their equipment, you know, and I'm simplifying here, but the idea is they have a lot of fixed expenses. Uh, and if, you know, if Bitcoin's price goes down or goes up, it doesn't change the fact that they have employees with salaries to pay. So they have to sell a lot of their Bitcoin uh, and they're doing this constantly. Um, and so Justin Drake in his spreadsheet, he modeled the profit margins of a Bitcoin miner at 5%, right? Uh, and I was like, well, that's pretty aggressive. Uh, that seems pretty low to me. I mean, maybe it's like, there's, you know, businesses out five, there with 5% and then you get a having, aren't you out of business? Yeah. So I was kind of confused. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I started, so first of all, my analysis, because I was like, this is too much to include in my report. My analysis just took Justin Drake's assumption and ran with it. Right. I didn't address this, uh, this like question, but I will say like on my part, I looked into this just to see if it was like a valid assumption. Yeah. Um, and I think he's onto something. So I, I looked at uh, Riot Blockchain. It's a publicly traded uh, Bitcoin mining company. And uh, when Bitcoin started running up, it was kind of famous because Riot was going even faster. Because Riot's like a $100 million company. And Bitcoin is, was at the time was like $200 billion market cap. So if you know Bitcoin went up five times, Riot went up 30 times, You know something insane like that. Um, so I started looking at Riot Blockchain's SEC filings because uh, they have publicly available information. And let me tell you, Bitcoin miners are horrible business models. Terrible. The entire the entire annual report is them just explaining how they recently bought a new computer and they sold their old computer, but they're gonna have to buy a new computer soon because their current computers are not good enough for the next having. Like it's terrible. Like they're in their income statement. I just couldn't see any profit. Like their operating costs, like I, I genuinely don't, I had to dig into the accounting, but I don't understand how they're not all like going bankrupt, right? It has to do, I think it has to do with the fact that there's an inflection point. There has to be like at the peak of the cycle has to keep them afloat, uh, I'm guessing. But like, if you just look at like the 2020 and 2019, for instance, like their, their income statements, they're just burning money. Um, so like, you know, maybe uh, Bitcoin's price has risen. So maybe in 2021, they'll finally get profitable because they'll have some, it's called operating leverage if their costs are fixed. Sure. But it's more complicated than that because when the halving happens, they have to, they have to make sure that they, they maintain the amount of, of Bitcoin that they're actually mining. Uh, and so when the halving happens, they have to like go and buy more computers. Uh, and it's been well publicized. There's a shortage of graphics cards. Like these are not easy I'm, things to get their hands on. Yeah. I mean, ASICs for Bitcoin mining, but like given, given a less than 10% margin, how can, if Bitcoin halves, yeah. their revenue, their top line comes down by half, right? Yeah. So, so if Bitcoin halves, their top, their top line, like from that point would come down by half, but the Bitcoin's. Yeah. Bitcoin is predictable, right? So like this having, they can forecast their revenue, they can forecast their expenses. Uh, but you're right to think that, man, if the having, if one year the having happened and Bitcoin's price did not go up, yeah, they would be screwed because they would have to invest in twice as much mining equipment uh, to get the same revenue, right? And so if they're running this thin margins now, they would not be able to really sustain a business on right. it. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, there would still be, you can, it's not that mining is not 
something I guess the interesting do, it's just look at profit margins over a full cycle to see like what what the the yeah. blended profit margin would be. Yeah, and I I'd imagine I'm, I mean they have to be higher than yeah. 5% over a full cycle, but yeah, I mean the reason I didn't is because I actually don't really care about the profit margins over a huge cycle because I want to know how much Bitcoin are miners selling before the halving. Okay. I I want to know before because if if they if if after the halving they are uh, you know holding onto the Bitcoin as the price rises and recognizing tons of like revenue and maybe at, at the top they sell like that that doesn't affect my argument. I'm I'm looking at the next from from here to the top like what's the selling pressure. That we're going to see, right? Uh, and so, if if that, I, and I, I genuinely do think that at the top, there's probably selling pressure from miners that have managed to like you know hold as much as they can avoid selling, and they're dumping it at the top near or you know as as prices turn down. Uh, so that's probably part of the dynamic. And saying that the miner sell pressure gets cut in half is a simplification, right? But it it works very well for that time period that we care about, which is that you know the having event happens. And then six months later, the price is much higher. Why? Right? It, what explaining why it crashes afterwards involves a little more nuances about what the miners are doing. Um, but anyways, I thought it was a good operating assumption to kind of just look at uh, for that little time period that I wanted to focus on. Does, does that make sense? Sure. So w- what is the key takeaway here? I guess when reading your paper, the key takeaway is because they have to sell. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so the key takeaway is that miners have to sell a huge fraction of their Bitcoin that they're mining, roughly, uh, and that they have to do this. Sorry, roughly on what order, like percentage-wise, half, like more than half. Yeah. So the, 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 if the profit margin is is uh, in, and the profit margin includes all the expenses, includes taxes, um, but they have to sell ninety-five percent, right? on this uh, 5% profit margin assumption. This is a um, of inelastic sell pressure that is just constant, right? In, in, right? in Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah, it's price insensitive. So they have to deal with their expenses. Uh, and if anything, like they need to raise cash before the halving to deal with future expenses so that they can be hodling through the halving, right? So like they, it it's, Exactly. They have to sell a lot of Bitcoin before in like in 2019 and approaching 2020. Um, and and yeah, they're selling 95% of that issuance. Well, when a halving event happens, that total amount that they're selling at the very least has to decline by 50%. Right. Um, and I think it, it could be that it declines by more uh, if, you know, the miners are, are more profitable at higher prices. I don't know. That requires a more detailed model, but yeah. Um, so to bring the idea it- there is exactly to bring it back. It's just if if miners are selling a fixed amount before and they're selling half that after, uh, there's reduced price insensitive selling, um, and that is kind of a tailwind on price. It doesn't mean that price has to go up, right? If if an equal and opposite amount of selling happened, so if if you know we found out that the U.S. was banning Bitcoin and everyone started to rush to the exits, Bitcoin's price would crash. Uh, after the having, because the having is not a big enough change in sell pressure to account for that kind of a uh, outflow, right? But if if things are roughly the same, if nothing has really changed in that three month period, then that price is going to rise because the demand is going to stay roughly the same, the supply is going to stay roughly the same, except this little bit of price insensitive selling that was constant is going to have reduced, and now that amount of buying. Is going to be equally constant 
And so if, if on any random day, the amount of selling just randomly declines by a little bit, the price is going to rise. So it's not going to rise every single day, but there's an edge that it will. If, if, if there's random variation in, in uh, the amount of supply, but you know there's a fixed amount of like you know, supply-demand dislocation, the price is going to rise gradually. Um, and, and that'll happen until the price gets high enough that new, like a new run rate supply that is equivalent to the miners selling appears just from the market, right? So it's not that it's going to rise forever, but it's at some point it'll get high enough that any investor at that price will be like, eh, like now's a good time to sell. And they'll just emerge and create supply at like kind of a run rate. Right. So the key thing here is like, you are looking at your analysis is focusing on the inelastic sources in the supply um, of Bitcoin. And then later on, like using this to reason about Ethereum, because there are mechanisms that's like algorithmic mechanisms uh, determining these dynamics. Prior to May of 2020, the block, uh, the, the each, each block reward for Bitcoin was 13 Bitcoin when you, when you discover it for a block. And um, a Bitcoin miner would be like, uh, they found the block, they get these 13 um, you know, BTCs and they would sell 90% of it. And that's the day-to-day operations of the business because they have to pay for their staff, yeah, right? Exactly. After May, 2020, this gets half to 6 point, uh, what, five? Um, oh, it's, it was about 12.5. So it gets, it got half to 6.25, which is the current BTC um, block reward per block. And now they only get half as much and yeah, they still have to sell it. But now the sell pressure has been reduced, roughly speaking, by half. Right. Um, this is just a, it's like almost like a ticking clock in the background. Um, this exactly. is a tiny percent, like what, less than 1% of the actual. Yeah. Oh, it's tiny. Yeah. yeah. This is a tiny percent, but, but it basically um, soaks up. I mean, it, it changes over time. It accumulates and kind of soaks up the marginal buyer and yeah. sell. Yeah. And I, if, if I can go back. So I used an example in my paper that I think really illustrates, because a lot of people go, well, it's 1%. Like, why is 1% such a big deal? Right? Yeah. And so in my report, I talk about something I call the IPO lockup effect. Yeah. Uh, and that is where if there's a new IPO, let's say a technology company, um, and a lot of new insiders are millionaires now, and they're not professional investors. They don't know if their stock's going to go up or down in the next 10 years, but they're now newly millionaires. So they have to sell. And they have this maybe huge amount of stock, maybe like, you know, 30%, 20% of the float is in these, with these insiders. And so they start selling and it's forced selling. And these flows are much bigger than, uh, than the Bitcoin havings uh, selling, but they're forced to sell it because they don't care about the prices. They just want to take, get their fortune. Right. So I talk about how, when they do that, that can't be priced in the, the price of that technology company or whatever is having that IPO lockup period. The day after insiders are able to sell, there is now selling pressure that doesn't care how low the price goes. And so the price will fall on that day. And if the price falls before then, in order to kind of price that in, then it'll just fall even more, right? Because Um, these people got their stocks at such a low cost basis to them, this doesn't matter. And they're rich, exactly. They're not looking at it like, oh, like, you know, is this a good investment? I valued the company. They're like employees and they just got rich. Yeah. And, and VCs. Yeah. And, they, and they're like, look, if it falls, like if I'm getting a 10% less, like I just want to secure, like I, this is my retirement now. Like, you know what I mean? I like, let's not mess with it. My net worth is in this stock. I have to do it. Right. I have to like, this is they're like, they're not messing around. Like they're selling. Right. So, okay. So that 
is price insensitive selling and it moves the price of these IPOs down. That cannot be priced in. But notice, Bitcoin is not in a perpetual state of, of having its price go down, right? These miners are selling constantly, but its price is not constantly going down. So how does the analogy work? And my point is, yes, the Bitcoin miner selling is a small part of supply, but at the same time, because it's so consistent, it's just, it's perpetual. It's like this IPO lockup is never ending for Bitcoin, right? Micro IPO lockups every day. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and, and it leads the price to reflect kind of an equilibrium between supply and demand, where at whatever price Bitcoin is before the halving, sure, there's maybe 0.5% or 1% of the volume that is this like IPO lockup selling that would kind of reduce the price. But wherever that price is, there has to be an equal and opposite demand. It has to be price insensitive buying, right? And so I talk about this later in my report, like, what does that look like? Well, it looks like um, companies allowing you to automatically have recurring payments to buy Bitcoin, no matter what. It, ha- it looks like people stacking Bitcoin and saying like, you know, they're going to hodl for life, never, hashtag never sell. Uh, I put 10% of my paycheck every week into Bitcoin. That's what that looks. It's price insensitive on buying no matter what. And the idea is the reason Bitcoin's price can can just not fall constantly in the face of the selling pressure is because at that price, there is price insensitive buying. And that's the best kind of a buyer. Like that's the kind of buyer that you see in a mania, right? They're just not looking. They're like, the reason I'm buying this is because I think it's going to go up. I do not, I don't care what I'm, about the details of what I'm buying. It's automated. I'm not looking at it, buying it for like whatever reasons I have that are price insensitive. And when the price insensitive selling reduces, that price insensitive equal and opposite buying does not reduce. And again, it's, it's, it's powerful. And so even if it's a small percent, it's not just like fickle investors thinking about buying. These are, you know, the, the most powerful buyers and that's just going to overwhelm. People talk about weak hands to strong hands, transfer of, of, of Bitcoin. And that's what that is. is the strongest possible hands are the people who are able to counteract the, Minor selling. The minor selling is the weakest possible hands, right? And so suddenly half of the weakest possible hands reduce. Those strong hands are just going to eat through the like weak hands in the market that they're not, they used to be having this battle with the miners. Now they're going to eat through the kind of the market supply. And so, yes, it's just 1%, 0.5%, whatever that number is, but it is an incredibly powerful force over a longer time horizon when it has time to really, to really act. Just final point on this before we get to how this applies to Ethereum. Um, I looked at the three having points in time over in the context of Bitcoin's chart. And sure, it looks like, you know, Bitcoin rises afterwards. And, um, but normally, but at least the first two, it was basically halfway between a bull market. It was, you know, halfway already going yeah. up. Um, I mean, how... I don't know. How predictive do you think this is? Like, because Bitcoin macroscopically has been going up, can't like if these lines you just drop yeah. them in random places, it seems like the chances of them going up afterwards is still pretty high. Yeah, and you're definitely right, but it's it is it is a little bit ridiculous that you can literally take the day of the halving where the price is not doing anything too fancy usually, <laughs> and then you could just go three months out and you have you've trounced every other asset class, and you can do that for three you know three different three month periods. Uh, that are like separated by years. And again, you're not cherry picking either because you're saying, no, I'm following the algorithm that was preset. So in 2009, you know, you knew what these three month periods were going to be to look at, you know? So 
So like, we're looking at it in hindsight, but this isn't just cherry picking random dates to say, oh, like, you know, Bitcoin went up here. It's like, no, this is a, the Bitcoin halving doesn't happen because of Bitcoin's price, right? Bitcoin halving happens because of a pre-programmed algorithm. So we sure. look at this thing that has nothing to do with price and we see these price effects. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's pretty predictable. I mean, I think, you know, we've never, we've also never had a, like a major liquidation event in the three months after. If we, you know, right. if, if COVID had happened three months after the Bitcoin halving, Exactly. then Bitcoin would have fell, right? And, and so it, it is fortuitous that, you know, Bitcoin's having has, has managed to escape those like- It could have events. just been aligned to bull markets is my point. It's like three samples absolutely. and still a little thin, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, that's why I get where it's like, you know, these price insensitive buyers, uh, they're going to move the price up, but uh, that's assuming status quo with yeah, supply. They're not the right? most powerful actors in the ecosystem. No, and if 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 a bunch of levered, Bitcoin and traders, you know, have margin calls, like it's going to crash no matter how many people are stacking their Bitcoin, you know? So, and that's, yeah, that's why it's an edge, but it's not a certainty. Um, it's absolutely not a certainty. Okay, cool. So we've, we've kind of covered why these having events are important for Bitcoin. Basically when you take off inelastic sell pressure, you create this new, new buy availability and you can drive the price up over a, you know, multi-month period of time. Um, Ethereum is a different blockchain with different kind of uh, mechanisms guarding its supply. How does this apply to Ethereum? Yeah, so so right now, Ethereum is a proof-of-work blockchain as well, which means it has miners just like Bitcoin does. Um, And the miners receive issuance, um, which increases the circulating supply just like Bitcoin does, right? But there's a few differences. Um, Ethereum doesn't have a halving. Um, and that's because Ethereum doesn't have a hard supply cap. Um, so there's no, like right now at this moment, there's no like algorithmic limit on how much Ethereum can exist in the world, which means so far Ethereum's, uh, you know, minor issuance has actually been dilutive. Like it, it, it's not for, for Bitcoin because they can look at the total supply that has not been mined and they can argue that, look, like the total amount never changed. It's the circulating amount. Um, but for Ethereum, it was actually dilutive, right? You, you're having new Ethereum. This could continue forever. And Bitcoiners bring this up all the time. And it's like a point well taken. Uh, we, you know, Ethereum investors will argue that it's worth it for a variety of reasons, but it's not that it's not happening. Um, and so that's the context, right? So, so then why did Ethereum rise so much in 2017? Um, I basically think that Ethereum rose so much in 2017 for two reasons. One is uh, just Bitcoin contagion. So like the same reason that like, you know, Bitcoin miners will go up when Bitcoin goes up, uh, even though like they're not profitable enough for like their value to have literally gone up 10 times. Like if you like forecasting future cash flows for a Bitcoin miner, like, you know, Bitcoin's price is going to go through cycles. So you don't just multiply by 10, you know, but, um, but the reason it's going up is because people are buying everything peripheral to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin goes up, Ethereum goes up, Chainlink goes up, you know, every DeFi altcoin uh, shitcoin is going up at the same time. And I think honestly that the best evidence that this is what is happening is, is, is that, is that when you look at the correlations between two stocks in the same industry, you look at like, you know, uh, it, I don't know, what's, what's, what's a good example? Coke and Pepsi, or like, you know, you, you see their correlations and they're like lower than, than like Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, it's like, it's like, it, it, and, and if you know anything about Ethereum and Bitcoin, like they are 
very different. Like they're not just two different like soft drinks. You know what I mean? They are, they're like completely different assets. So it, the fact that they're more correlated, I think tells you something about who is buying and what they're buying based on. And, and, and in 2017, that's what drove it was there was a Bitcoin cycle. Bitcoin was discovered by the media and that's reflected in Google trends, searches, uh, media appearances. Um, and, uh, and near the end of the cycle, there was a little bit of a craze around initial coin offerings as well, where people started to take advantage of the fact that they could make money with this kind of Bitcoin contagion. Um, but then when it crashed, you know, that whole thing fell apart. Um, so, so how is Ethereum different than Bitcoin is an interesting question because so far it hasn't been treated differently. Uh, and so far there's been maybe good reason that it hasn't been treated differently because even though it advertises smart contracts, it still has been a proof of work system uh, and it's had issuance. And so if, uh, you know, so it's, it's not going through a halving event. The only thing that really moves its price so far, and it's this correlated to Ethereum, I mean, this correlated to Bitcoin is Bitcoin. So there's no, to this point, if you bought Ethereum and you thought Bitcoin was going to go down, then you were uh, doing something that kind of contradicted itself. Um, and this will change. Those in the Bitcoin, uh, those in the Ethereum ecosystem truly believe in the merits of Ethereum as opposed Absolutely. to Absolutely. Right? So they're, Absolutely. they're saying they're just too small to really matter in, in terms of- I, Exactly. I'm, I'm saying that, yeah, they, they believe it and they know it and, and that knowledge is mispriced. So I think they'll be rewarded for it. But it just, the data doesn't show that that they are, uh, that their beliefs are being reflected in price. Maybe like until this, this week or two. When, when well, the- yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In the last week or two, things have been a little different, but- I agree. And generally they're, they're like, one is a higher beta version of the other. Absolutely. Um, exactly. And, and, that's, uh, and that's why, that's actually what this thesis is built on, because that will change. So uh, I argue in the next 18 months, uh, not only will, like, the next six months, uh, you know, we'll see the change happen. But over the next 18 months, I think that the prices will reflect that there, that Ethereum is not just a higher beta version of Bitcoin, that something is really going on here. Um, and the, so there's two changes. Um, one is called EIP-1559. And all that is is a software update, basically. Um, so the code the, that underlies uh, the Ethereum blockchain is going to change the way that transaction fees work. So normally with a proof of work blockchain, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, transaction fees are paid. There's like a limited number of, of computers that are validating transactions. And so if you have, let's give an example. It's you have a hundred computers that are validating transactions. You have a hundred thousand transactions that want to go through. How do you prioritize whose transactions get through and how do you kind of like make the system efficient? So right now these fees are being paid to the miners uh, and that allows both the miners to have an incentive to validate the transactions. And it also allows the system to kind of like um, adjudicate how, which transactions go through when and how to prioritize, right? Um, so right now the transaction fees just go to the miners as issuance again, um, or actually not issuance, sorry, as um, it's just being paid from the people who are, yeah, sorry. This is, the users are paying in this case, not the- Exactly, exactly. sorry, not issuance, I should clarify. Yeah, um, but yeah, so it's being paid to the miners. Uh, and, but I guess what I went to say with that is, uh, and the miners are selling that issue. It's issue, it's to miners. You know, the, the miners are selling that just like they're selling the block reward. Um, so it's not dilutive, but it does, it's part of that sell pressure is I guess what I was trying to get at. 
Um, so with EIP 1559, Ethereum is going to say, we're not doing that anymore. From now on, 70% of the transaction fees we're going to burn, which means we're literally deleting that from circulating supply. Um, this would be the equivalent of just literally like setting 70% of transaction fees in dollars, like setting them on fire, right? Uh, and the effect of that is to reduce the circulating supply. Um, that's really important because as I've kind of brought up, Bitcoin is a hard cap, but its circulating supply is increasing. And that's just the same that's the thing that's happening to gold, right? It's like, yeah, there might be a fixed amount of Bitcoin in the world, but uh, there's a certain amount that investors own and that amount is increasing. Yeah. Um, with Ethereum, for the first time, we have a mechanism to decrease the amount of Ethereum that investors hold. So it's not just decreasing the total supply theoretically, it's actually decreasing the circulating supply. And that circulating supply is what forms the supply and demand dynamics around well, any asset. Well, supply, around supply in a moment in time, in the present. Exactly, it's, it's the supply right now and not uh, the future theoretical hard cap, but we're talking about the supply right now, right? So that's huge. and in it, leads to the question of, so how big could this get? What does 70% uh, of the fees mean? Um, and, and Justin Drake's an Ethereum researcher, and he's been doing a lot of, of analysis based on the like rolling 365-day moving average of transaction fees to kind of get a sense for, okay, so like what kind of fee burn are we going to see? Um, and based on his calculations, uh, we're actually going to see a 2% net deflation in the circulating supply of Ethereum. Uh, so that means that uh, every year, the amount, of, the amount of Ethereum is going to decrease. The amount of Ethereum that's available to purchase and out in the market is going to decrease by 2%. Um, and effectively, that creates a hard cap on the amount of Ethereum, right? So if, if, if enough is going to be burned every year, that... Uh, there's the supply is going to decrease, then that whatever the supply was at that moment, that's the peak supply. So that creates an effective hard cap. And I think I remember the estimate he put was 120 million ether that will ever exist. Um, but it's, it's bigger than that. So, so when Bitcoin has a hard cap, that's 21 million of which a significant percentage is not in the circulating supply. They're not saying 21 million exist currently that investors have and they could be buying and selling they're saying that's like the amount that will ever future exist when when justin drake says we have a hard cap at 120 million that means that's how much ethereum is already out there and that's the amount from which we're going to decrease so so the hard cap on ethereum is going to have a much more dramatic impact on price because we're we're the circulating supply is shrinking Whereas for Bitcoin, the circulating supply is actually is actually expanding, right? And so uh, it's so whereas Bitcoin's mind is trying to make a philosophical argument around monetary policy, Ethereum doesn't need to make a monetary. I mean, it is a monetary policy argument, right? But they don't need to make that argument. It will show up in supply and demand dynamics because when they say they have a hard cap, they also literally the amount of supply is capped in that in in time in that point in time, right? Um, so it's going to play out. So if you um, CNBC a year in the future, what's going to happen is you just two charts side by side. You can literally see Bitcoin supply increasing. And yeah. on the other side, you can literally see on-chain metrics showing Ether supply decreasing. And that's just going to be like exactly. side by side. 
Exactly. So you can talk about like, you know, the, the monetary policy implications of an inflationary or deflationary economy. But, you know, th- that that is that's like a value investor who's saying this company is worth more than you think it is. I'm trying to convince you to buy it. Yeah. I don't think you need to go that far. I think you're going to see this chart and you're going to see supply literally decreasing. And th- there's just as long as demand doesn't collapse with it, supplies, I mean, the price is going to go up. And the price is going to have to go up to create new supply. Uh, it's going to have to go up until it hits people's price targets. And they go, oh, okay, it's time to sell. And that's the supply that that the market needs to satisfy demand. Um, so that's one mechanism. Uh, and that's scheduled for July 14th, uh, which is much more concrete. I think when I was writing this, it, wasn't, it was like July maybe. But recently they announced July 14th, which is exciting. Um, it's absolutely a risk. A lot of people ask, like, is is there a risk? Like, this doesn't happen. I mean, absolutely. Like, um, I think the analogy I use in my paper is merger arbitrage risk. Like, if, if a company announces they're going to merge, like, there's always the risk with, like, the FTC in those situations. There are whole hedge funds devoted towards handicapping that risk, right? So is there a risk that this is not going to go through? Of course. It's not. Nothing's 100%. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you noticed, but... I don't, I don't think it's priced in. <laughs> I, I think unlike a merger. Let me ask another question. Like, um, yeah. can it be, is this another thing that cannot be priced in? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's like that IPO lockup effect where uh, right now you have that 70% that's going to be burned. Right now it's being sold and that there's an equal and opposite demand. There's an equal and opposite buyer that stabilizes Ether's price. So right now, like Ethereum's at like 3,500 or something. Well, guess what? Miners are getting 100% of transaction fees. They're selling some very large proportion of that. Now, they're going to be getting 70% less of those transaction fees. So they're not going to have that to sell in the future, right? And so um, that has to affect price. And, and it can't affect price now. I mean, it could affect price now by convincing you to buy it. Yeah. But even so, like the day after EIP-1559 happens, there'll still be less people selling than there were the day before. Sell so pressure, regardless of the price, sell pressure has to be lower post-1559, just by... Right. And, and, and again, we can contextualize. We're not saying all of the sell pressure is cut in half or something. I mean, it's... One kind of sell pressure. It's one kind of sell pressure, and it represents a small fraction of the daily trading volume. Um, but like I explained with the Bitcoin halving, I think it's going to be very significant. Um, the other, the other thing to notice though, is that, and and I'll get into this, but the 30% that remains, so there'll be this, there'll be this like three or four month period from July to November where that 30% goes to miners. And again, those miners are going to sell. Right. But, um, that changes even further with proof of stake. Um, so I'll, I'll, I kind of get into explaining proof of stake, but I just, I want to kind of put that out there that that 30%, the incentives around it, the profit margins, uh, the way that like the expenses that stakers have are very different than the expenses miners have. Um, and so even that 30% is, it seems like there's a lot more selling than there actually will be. Uh, and that's reflected in Justin Drake's math. So it's not like I underestimate, it's not like I, uh, underestimated the the math i think three halvings is is the a good description of this decrease in sell pressure that we'll see um but it just is to say it's not just that the fees are getting burned uh it's a setup so that we're going to see that happen and then three months later when proof of stake happens it's going to kind of accentuate that effect 
Okay, so your argument, uh, the, the basically, you have two catalysts that, that are used to build your um, argument that it's a triple halving event. And by triple halving event, you mean that, whereas having reduced it by half, the Ethereum, um, what's happening in the next 18 months for Ethereum is going to reduce this for Ethereum by 90%, right? So yeah. first one is, is this 1559, and that contributes to what, a third of the, 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 the sensitivity? Yeah, it, it's, it's like a 30% reduction in in cell pressure so it's 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 roughly like half it's like half of a having events effect yeah. <laughs> uh like a mini having you know um so it, it's like if, if there are three halvings 0.5 of that comes from eip 1559 and 2.5 comes from uh proof of stake nice. so um yeah and, there, and there's that's really fun to think about because a lot of this like equal and opposite demand is going to is going to eat into uh, the supply, when I talk about that, um, like I'm talking about it from Bitcoin before it, it goes on to a halving, which means it's, you know, coming down from a cyclical peak and there's a lot of overhead supply. Um, right now, Ethereum is, is pretty high, right? And so I, I wrote this in a, like a kind of speculative thread a few days ago, but I was saying like, I could easily see us rising into July and then actually falling, like sell the news kind of uh, into that event. Um, that that actually, a lot of people would say then that it was priced in. And I would say, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think that we'll see that happen and that will be the overhead supply. Like if, if you know, I'm just gonna make up numbers here. Let's say we go up to 8,000 and uh, July 14th comes around and there's a big sell off down to 6,000, right? So now there's a bunch of like potential supply where if the price goes from 6,000 to 7,000, people go, okay, let me get out while it's good. Uh, that's the kind of supply though, that it is perfect for a, a having event to kind of soak up uh, because you have these price insensitive buyers who are just like, give me, like we can't just strong hands, right? They'll just suck that up. Um, and so it's going to be interesting that unlike a Bitcoin having event, which usually happens at a cyclical bottom uh, and then kind of pushes the having like, soaks through supply and it kind of unlocks the price. Um, we are already at a pretty high point. Um, and so I think the effect that, that this will have is more likely going to soak up like new supply that comes on from, from like a, a sell off, a scare. I think I talked about how if, if, if everyone's price targets is from 10 to 20,000 or from you know 10 to 25,000, that's going to be where a lot of supply comes on. Because even people who like Ethereum, they'll be like, oh, but 15,000 is my target for this cycle. Yeah. And they sell and that's them selling is what we're going to see soaked up. Whether uh, it's not about narrative, it's just about like people who are buying Ethereum no matter what at any price are going to keep doing that um, and it'll soak it up. So anyways, that's just an interesting aside. Okay. Um, just as a side, I, I have about 20 minutes left before I have to run. So let's, all right. I, we've got plenty of time to cover it. But let's talk about the the main meat of the uh, the, the the thesis here, the um, transition to proof of stake. Um, how does that affect uh, kind of the sell pressure? Yeah, so the transition to proof of stake is really important. Um, this is where instead of using miners to secure the blockchain, uh, you use stakers. And the staker means you you buy your Ethereum, you have a computer. It can be just any simple uh, like low cost. Uh, hardware, uh, not like a Bitcoin miner. Um, and you will run a client that puts up your Ethereum as like at risk. And in return for validating transactions and not attacking the network, you are given issuance. Um, 
This is important because this has a few dynamics that are different. First of all, in order to participate, you have to own Ethereum. And the amount that is staked in each uh, in each validator is 32 Ethereum. Right? So with, with prices where they are right now, that's a lot of money. You're talking about like $90,000 or something, you know, insane. Um, more than that? I don't know. Um, but the point is, uh, it's a lot of money and it's in incentive aligned with Ether. So uh, whereas miners have an incentive to sell, stakers have an incentive for Ethereum's price to go up because they have to hold Ethereum and they will very likely want to stake their issuance as well. There's no reason to sell it because they don't have the expenses that miners have. Um, so their main expense will probably just be taxes. So Justin Drake modeled 50% profit margins. Pretty much that entire amount is just from taxes um, that they recognize. Um, so when 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 uh, when the profit margins improve, uh, that will it make the uh, amount of, of Ethereum being sold dramatically reduce even further. And Justin Drake kind of models this out, but that's where I get the 90% reduction from. So it's, I think you're dropping from 22 million or 22,000 uh, Ether sold per day down to 15.7 uh, from EIP 1559. And then you drop from 15.7 to like 2.6 um, from um, proof of stake. And so that's the big drop. I see. This, this remaining self sell pressure is just to pay taxes. Yeah, I mean, it was you know, so it's supposed to model. So taxes is not likely that most people will have fifty percent uh, taxes. That's pretty high. But the idea was to model. We're trying to model. Uh, most of it will be taxes, and then a little bit of it will just be people taking money off the table. Like if you are a staker and you don't want to literally restake a hundred percent of your ETH, which I don't think we could expect that everyone will always restake all of their ETH. Um, then they might sell some of that. And so we can't just aggressively assume um, that it's, I think, I, I think a 50% profit margin is pretty reasonable. Okay. Yeah. So this is, um, how do I get this? Like how, for Bitcoin, that pressure was around 1%. What does this constitute for the Ethereum ecosystem? This constant kind of background sell pressure. Yeah, I, I I wish I had better data for like uh, daily volumes so that I could have like literally calculated. That. It just would have helped with context. I'm not sure. I think some of my back of the envelope math, I thought it was like something like you know one per one percent or like one point five percent or something like that. But I I don't want to just throw out numbers. Um, I think the the key way to contextualize it is that the profit margins uh, in proof of work are going to be very similar. And the profit margins in proof of stake, when they reduce by 90%, uh, whatever it is for Bitcoin, we're going to see three halvings worth of a decline. So I don't know, you know what percentage of the daily volume that is, but because I can see the effect on Bitcoin, I can see that the effect will be bigger with Ethereum. And again, here I'm using, it looks like I'm using an analogy, but it's not a theoretical one. I'm looking at like, the profit margins are again these structural flows. I know that we're seeing the same kind of structural flows on a higher magnitude, and so I, I don't think I'm just making a theoretical analogy of like, oh, Ethereum is like better than Bitcoin, so if Bitcoin goes up, Ethereum will go up. Like I'm saying, no, like the exact same sellers that yeah. are gonna, you know, not be selling in <laughs> Ethereum as in Bitcoin, but they're gonna do it on you know orders of magnitude uh, larger scale. So we should see 
uh, a faster, uh, more aggressive move. Okay. So let's say we buy the logic um, up to this point, which is that there's going to be two software change events that are very, very that material to um, the mechanics of who sells Ethereum on a set schedule, this EIP-1559 and proof of stake. In the aggregate, it will reduce that like background sell pressure by 90%. Um, how do you argue from that to your price target of $150,000 per ETH by 2023? Yeah, so from there you have to, so from there in a Bitcoin halving, a first part of the move is going to be the structural flows. But the last part of the move is narrative. And that's why you see it crash, right? Because if if it was all these structural flows, when when Bitcoin fell back down, you would expect that those flows would would kind of like pick it up, right? And, and so how does Bitcoin crash so much? I mean, I think that's it's what prevents Bitcoin from crashing as much as, you know, Ether crashing 95%. Um, I definitely think the halving helps there. But um, I do think that, like it will crash that much because at some point what's driving it up higher is just narrative adoption, mania, um, people going, oh, this might be interesting and starting to like become Bitcoin believers. And I think the same thing is going to happen with Ethereum. And so, so then I, I was asking myself, well, how do I ground that? Uh, and I think a lot of institutions have already started looking at Bitcoin and looking at Bitcoin pricing models. So what I did was I said, okay, I think as a base case, a lot of institutions will, I can just use, I can just use a fundamental analysis kind of style to figure out where institutions will buy up until. Like I think institutional buying could continue past this point, but I think at the very least institutions that kind of wake up to Ethereum when the price starts rising, they'll look into this and I think they'll discover that it should be worth at least 30 to 50,000. Uh, and to argue that I start going through kind of an ensemble of different valuation models. So I look at stock to flow, which is just a Bitcoin analogy. And I show how, if you look at the historical Ethereum to Bitcoin ratio, you look at stock to flow, and then you have these changes. Suddenly Ethereum has a negative stock to flow. That is to say each year there's a negative flow. There's a deflation of the circulating supply. I argue that deserves a premium. And so I kind of show how, okay, if, if uh, Ethereum is just uh, being valued at the Bitcoin stock to flow, then based on Bitcoin or price targets that a lot of institutions have adopted, Ethereum can get to 28,000 this cycle. But if you give it a premium over 28,000, a five times premium over that gets you to 140,000. Now, wait, my base case is not 140,000, right? But I argue, well, okay, what if you gave it a one to two times premium? And that gets you from 30 to 60,000, right? That's right in line with my base case. Yep. And it also suggests- What is your base case? 30 to 50,000. 30 to 50, okay. Right? And it also suggests at runway for, okay, when the price is going up, there's more narrative adoption. People have more conviction. People like learn and and, and get excited. And if, if you're trying to see what, like in my head, the analogy I like to use is, is as Tesla price rose, you can see how analysts started adding things to their models. They were like, initially it was like electric vehicles and it was like batteries. Then it was robo taxi. Like, you know, that's a new thing of like, oh, we, we didn't think to add the robo taxis to our DCF models, it's right? Energy. And it's, oh, they can sell a computer too. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so again, this is a flows analysis. I'm looking into the future and I'm like, look, I can make a strong case, I think, for that like 30 to 50,000. But that's, no one's just going to hard stop there. I think people, there's a very clear valuation runway 
for if you if institutions want to keep buying into this, they absolutely will be able to, and they'll be able to justify it. Um, I also use other valuation models. So I talk about Raul Paul has uh, kind of famously on Twitter, he released a Metcalf's law based valuation model where he regressed Bitcoin's price against the amount of active addresses. Uh, and he looked at Ethereum's path on that progression. And he said Ethereum should be worth 20,000 this cycle because its path along the progression was exactly where Bitcoin was in 2017. And so I pointed out that, well, in the four months since he wrote that post, Ethereum has bridged the entire gap in active accounts uh, with Bitcoin and actually surpassed it. And so, uh, you know, Bitcoin is right now worth five times what it was worth in its 2017 peak. Yeah. So if Ethereum has now bridged that full gap, it should be worth five times what it would be worth at its like analogous 2017 peak. So if Raul Paul says that peak is 20,000, it should be worth 100,000 right there, right? And so again, does it need to like, does it that, do you need to be that aggressive? No, you could say base case 30 to 50,000, but there's that runway. So, you know, the narrative can, can drive price farther. Then, so I'll just, I guess I'll stop there. The, my, my report, if you're interested, the report has like several other valuation models. I go through a discounted cash flow and I kind of get to similar conclusions. Um, but I guess the, the, the last piece of it is just to say, you have to, in order to get, like you can throw these numbers around, but I acknowledge that getting from 50,000 to 150,000 is $10 trillion of market cap. You can't just throw around, like if it tripled last time, it'll triple again. You know, I, I get that that there's a diminishing return issue when you get to the size. So that's where it becomes so important that I talk about this illiquidity dimension. Um, so just very quickly, um, uh, Ethereum has this dynamic where when you stake Ethereum, uh, you can't remove it in order to receive your staking rewards, your yield. And so I think that with the yields being so high, more and more people will stake their Ethereum and even if they don't stake it immediately, they'll get in line. So you have to enter the queue in order to stake your Ethereum. And that means you're not selling it because as soon as you leave the line, you have to get to the back. <laughs> and so that's going to create um, a supply sink where suddenly if you're looking to buy Ethereum, you're not going to be able to buy it from people who bought it, decided to stake it and look away for 10 years. It's it way be, easier to be like a retail invest. It's like the opposite of a lock, a lock up expiration. It's like, I already have liquid shares. Let me lock them up instead. Now they're, they're locked up. It's like going the other way. Yeah. And, and the psychology is so friendly to it because you're receiving yield, right? So like Bitcoin tries to build this hodl culture on this narrative of like, this is real money, have the psychological willpower, like don't sell. Ethereum says, no, do whatever you want. On a side note, I'm going to pay you 25% a year if you hold. <laughs> so that's just economics, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like on yeah, top just of psychology, it's like, we'll pay you to hodl. Like, yeah, exactly. It's, against. <laughs> it's, it's hard to beat. And I, I argue it's like whatever effect we're seeing in Bitcoin, I honestly think that hodling and that supply liquidity is a huge part of why Bitcoin is able to achieve a trillion dollar market cap. Right. But we're going to see that magnified in Ethereum, um, and and you can quantify it. So you look at the Ethereum that's locked in DeFi and the Ethereum that's been staked. Right now, that's twelve percent of market cap, right? Uh, and I talk about how if you look at um, if you look at the amount that would be staked to get yields to drop to seven percent, which again, like if yields are at like fifteen percent, like nothing yields fifteen percent. And hedge funds, you can arbitrage, you could short Ether to collect the yield. Like there are ways 
to get free 15% yields out of this if you want to. No one's just going to sit around and let that happen. So I don't see a world where- Where, follow. where is the, the, the sp- spread in, in yield? Why is there a thing? Mm-hmm. So let's say that uh, on um, in November, the staking starts and there's 4.5 million uh, stakers. And based on transaction fees, let's say it's a 20% yield, right? Uh, if you stake. And so um, interest rates right now, like the equity risk premium is like 5%. Like if you buy, if you buy the S&P 500, you should not be expecting 20% returns, right? What you can do is you could buy Ether, stake it, and then you could go onto the futures markets and you could short Ether to cover your, your exposure. So now you don't have exposure to Ethereum's price, right? I see. But what you will get is you'll get your staking yield in Ether. You can get that staking yield and that'll be a 25% yield, right? And so even if the price of Ether collapses, that's still going to be a substantial, like kind of free yield that you can arbitrage. Um, And that yield is not small. Like in a a world with 1.5% 10-year interest rates, like a 25% yield that a hedge fund can come in and and do that, I think institutions are going to do this at size. I think it's going to be- We'll incentivize them to go in, buy Ether, stake it, and then short the futures just as a trade, a risk parity. I mean, and that's assuming they don't look into this thing and say, this is the real deal. I want to just be a long-term investor, which I think I talk about the narrative, I think could very well happen. But I think at the very least short term, this is just free money lying around for a hedge fund with- even a little bit of sophistication. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I can't imagine a world where the staking queue is not backed up uh, tremendously until we get to reasonable yields. Like, you know, when you get to 7%, you know, maybe crypto is still risky, like it deserves the premium. Okay. But for that to happen, 20% of the market cap has to be locked up in staking. And that's assuming that DeFi doesn't grow at all. But we've seen DeFi right now has like 9% of the market cap locked up. So if DeFi grows, which again, the price of Ethereum rising brings attention to the space. So expect it to grow. Um, scalability, we haven't talked about much, but that's going to come online. I expect DeFi to grow and that's just going to cause more and more to be locked up. And so when I talk about it has 50,000, it has this runway to 100,000, runway to 150,000, sounds like $10 trillion of inflows. But with the, in- with the incredible illiquidity, it could be more like, 50 billion, a hundred billion dollars that moves that. And sure, that's a lot of money, but when we're talking about the kinds of like an ETF coming in could soak up like half of that, you know? And and since the price is set at the margin, you don't need inflows equivalent to the market cap increase, right? No, you don't. Exactly. You I I just point that out because I think that's a misconception that a lot of people have where they go 16 tr- I mean, how could it you where is who has the money to buy 16 trillion, right? Exactly. And I agree and I just say like it's just not like everyone's not going to be able to just sell at the point at the price point where it's 16 trillion and get that in cash. There's, that cash will not come from anywhere. Right. But that doesn't mean the price can't get there. And that some people who hold liquid ether will be able to sell, or even if it's staked that you at those prices, you couldn't like go in and short futures and, and lock that price in for yourself. I think you absolutely will be able to. If you had to critique your thesis or if you had to think how it could fall apart and, you know, three years down the track, I find you under a bridge and you're like, dude, what happened? You had this beautiful report. What, what, I thought you were going to make it. And you're like, I didn't make it. This is what happened. What do you, what, what, what did you tell me? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the real test for my thesis is going to be, 
I expect that when we hit that 10 to 25,000 range, there's going to be a lot of selling from people with a lot of conviction. People who believe in Ethereum are going to start selling, uh, which is not what you want if you want to fuel a mania, right? So the question is, how much is that going to be? Um, a lot of people are going to like see the top, right? And they're going to be like, okay, I have to sell. So, and, and, and that's going to happen, I think, a full, I would expect that to happen a full 12 months before my thesis is over. So I, I gave myself till January, 2023, because I thought I need time for a lot of things to kind of happen. I need time for proof of stake to cement itself, for there to be no problems with it, <laughs> for everything to be ironed out, um, for everyone with, with those 10 to 25,000 price targets to have either sold or decided to stay. Um, and I think that if there's, there's a world where that just, we see a complete collapse, where we see a, like a full cycle downturn at, by the end of Q1 2022, if, if, you know, we're back at 2000 because uh, it went up to 20,000 and it fell 90% or something, um, that's a lot of overhead supply. Uh, so it might be tough. To, to get all the way back up to 150. Could we get back up to 30 to 50,000, my base case? Like I still think we can, especially if an ETF comes in and I still think the illiquidity applies. Um, but those real peak heights, uh, it's gonna depend a lot on how many people sell. And there's a bit of reflexivity to this, right? So I'm hoping to, to convince people not to sell, but um, also- Your, paper, gonna... your price <laughs> is- because of your paper, which is because of the price target. There's, I mean, there's, yeah, it's, it's markets are reflexive, right? And so you have to, uh, yeah, the best thing I can do for my Ethereum investment is to convince other people that I'm right. <laughs> right. Um, but your base case of 30 to 50K is still based upon a fundamentals kind of style analysis, stock to flow. And, and these, you have to basically, uh, other people have to, agree with you and take on that framework and act on that framework institution specifically. Yep. Right. So um, to the extent that they don't use such frameworks or um, yep. to the extent that, you know, you, you give for in your more bullish case, you give Ethereum a premium over the kind of comparable for Bitcoin over, over its time in address, uh, you know, for the same number of dresses to the extent that maybe narratives such as, you know, given sale, given that institutions and Michael Saylor and these guys are just getting comfort with Bitcoin. I mean, arguably, Bitcoins could still have a premium over Ethereum just because it has proven more Lindy and it's had more airtime in the public. Right. So, like, there are other dynamics at play that can make the multipliers like higher or lower than what yeah. you assume. Absolutely, and and these the thing with valuation models is they're so sensitive to these subtle changes. You know, it's like what's a what's a three times multi multiple, how's that so different than a five times multiple, right? But it, it changes. That's like the difference between my base case and the liquid peak. And that's like trillions of dollars. So, so I completely agree with you. Uh, but the reason I don't think that premium will apply again is because I think there's so many sophisticated uh, crypto investors who will just tell me, I'll be like, Hey, so like, why, why the Bitcoin focus? And they'll be like, look, Ethereum can't scale. Hmm. Like there's this fundamental issue. Ethereum cannot scale. And I think if, if we get scaling to really on board by the end of 2021, like I have, there's going to be a full 12 months where my thesis is still like on the table and there's just going to be like, like no fees, like no fees at all. Right. And so I just think that that kind of like explosive change is going to be noticed 
and demand a premium, especially with the yield. Like it just kind of, it, it's a snowball, right? Like you have these, you're getting these yields for this explosive and suddenly the scalability is like the, was the dagger to the heart of like Ethereum's narrative, like for any investor for so long. And so, and I just don't think that people know, like, I think that people outside of the space, like they look into it, they're like, this isn't going to scale. This can't really be. And there's just going to be empirical evidence, like one way or the other, like maybe scaling fails. Like this is a risk I'm taking. Right. But if it succeeds, it's not going to be like a two X, like the, the rollups, they're trying to change it from 15 transactions per second to two to 3000 transactions per second. Right. So it's not subtle, but it works. And it's already like, I think it will rollups have de-risked. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Last question. I really got to run. And thank you for taking the time to do this. Of course. Um, how are you positioned for this for this thesis? Um, yeah. Tell the audience your bags and, and how you constructed those bags. Yeah. I mean, I I got in with a small, you know, my meager sum of money in uh, April 2020. Um, I kind of went all in uh, as it moved up, and I think my average cost is like three hundred dollars. Uh, so, so I, I was like, I got in, in a nice spot and, uh, I just, I just got conviction. I was like, this is, and this was early. And so I was like, this is it, this is going to work. Um, I just think there's no point selling until I've seen my thesis out. Okay. You got in 300 average, but now how have you levered up? Have you become more aggressive over the last yeah. three? I'm, I'm so I'm really wary of, of taxes. So it's like, I can, it's like, I can sell and I can take a short-term capital gains hit. Uh, which I think is about to expire. Although, I don't know, I have to look at it. But yeah, I can sell and get a short-term capital gains hit and then I can move to something like FLI and try to get like higher exposure. I, the worst thing that could happen to me is if I get like knocked out of my position, right? It's like, I just, I, I'm all in and I think that's a tremendous amount of exposure. And I've, I've been talking about on Twitter where I'm like, all Actually, in means like, what percentage of your portfolio, liquid portfolio? I think 97 and a half percent. Okay. What's the rest? Just curious. Yeah. So I have, basically I took like two and a half percent and I have certain like discrete catalysts in like uncorrelated opportunities that I think maybe I can like take a YOLO bet and I can outperform over like three months. If I can outperform ether, I can create new purchasing power. So I have like, I think I've tweeted about this. I your, looked your at like- intent is to be a hundred percent. Oh, I want to be a hundred percent. I just, where am I going to get the cash to buy more ETH? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I have like call options on uranium miners with like certain June catalysts. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe if there's a sell-off and if ether that, because it starts to hit price targets and my uranium miner catalyst kits in like, Worst case, I lose like this 2% and I'm not sweating it. Best case, like that becomes like 10% of my portfolio. And that's like a meaningful amount of new ether that I can buy. Um, and it's uncorrelated again. So that's a nice benefit. Um, but yeah, big picture. I just say like buy, hold 18 months. Like I'm not touching it. Uh, I'm going to be in medicine residency. I'm not going to have time to look at the price of ether day to day. <laughs> You're going to be <laughs> between classes. <laughs> I know <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nikhil, this has been a fantastic chat. Um, what's amazing is you make falsifiable predictions and you've laid out the case super clearly. Nothing, obviously, we've talked about is financial advice. Oh, no, definitely um, not. <laughs> this is us <laughs> talking about our bags and our views. Um, but let's chat again. Let's. How, when do you think it'll be a good time to touch base? To check in if the um, Yeah, it'll be good to talk sometime around 
after EIP 1559, maybe after proof of stake, we want to see how scalability is doing around then too. And uh, especially at the beginning of proof of stake, like how many, how many people have staked? Like, I want to know, because that's, it's up like 10% since I published my report, like people are staking, you know, so it's crazy. Awesome. Awesome. Great chat. Um, let's chat again after 1559 and really enjoyed report. Everyone should follow um, your squish on Twitter, squish chaos. Yep. I'll link it uh, in the, in the relevant sections and uh, yeah, all the great stuff is there and, and we'll, we'll chat again next time. It's been great talking to you. All right. Ciao.